All right, you guys ready? Second Kings 6. Um, let me just explain where we're at and what we're doing. Um, and let me just say this, by the way. Thank you guys for just your prayers this week. I know I mentioned this last week, but just with my mom, uh, her diagnosis, starting chemo, uh, it was a little bit of a rough week. Uh, she got rushed to the emergency room last night for some blood clots in her lungs, so she'll be there a couple of nights. Um, just appreciate your prayers uh, right now, and luckily they got her there quickly, and she's on blood thinners, but um, as she's kind of walking through chemo, just want to say thank you guys for your prayers, thank you for encouragement, and just continue to pray for her as she's kind of going through that right now. So thank you guys. Sorry to throw that on you, but I appreciate you guys so much for that. Listen, we're, here's what we're doing today. Um, the title today, I'll just jump right st- straight to it. The title today is Gaining by Losing. Gaining by Losing. There is an author and a pastor named J.D. Greer who wrote a book called Gaining by Losing. It's not going to be about this or that book, but that title has just stuck with me. That book was profound. It picks up on the idea or the element of um, the church belongs to those who send. All right, so how do you gain by losing? So, so often there's this biblical idea, if you want to gain, you got to give up. If you want to gain, you got to lose. Meaning, lose your life and you will find it, right? That's what Jesus said. Lose your life and you'll find it. Some of you are like seeking out maybe your identity. Who am I? Why am I here? You want to find your life? Give it up. That's what Jesus says. Gaining by losing. And so often there's little ideas or stories or illustrations to communicate those big truths. Uh, we're going to see in 2 Kings 6 this idea of a lost axe head. It's lost and found. We're going to also see in a very similar way um, people, the Syrians, who lose their sight, but then they get a better experience. They gain their sight again, but by losing their sight, they were given a, a wonderful opportunity. Gaining by losing. This to me is profound. This is the way of Jesus. I don't know how else to put it, but it, it just seems like the way of Jesus is if you want to find what you are made for, then give it up. Give up that pursuit even. Like as you lose your life, as you lose yourself, you'll find it ultimately in Jesus. So to me, this idea of a lost axe head, this is one of the strangest stories in the Bible, by the way. There are just some stories in the Bible. You're like, why is this here? He loses an axe head. He's like, alas, my master, it was borrowed. And you're like, why is this in the Bible? Um, and we'll actually talk about that. I think there's something really, sometimes there's stories where I'm like, I think I need to spend some time on this. It's maybe more than just a lost axe head. Uh, it's maybe more than just Syrians going blind and then being aware of the spiritual realm. There's something up here. There's something going on. So we're going to look at gaining by losing. Cool? You guys ready? Um, just to kind of catch you up, we're going through this, idea, this series. This is what we're going to call it a series. We're just walking through the Samuels and the Kings for the last like two years. Uh, the hope of this is just how do we see the gospel play out in the Old Testament? And, and again, this is one of those elements, gaining by losing. But just to recap a bit in case you are confused, and I, I'm going to test you guys. I just have to do this. We know that there's a massive change in 1 Kings 11, right? Israel was one kingdom under Saul officially, then David, then Solomon. After Solomon's death, the kingdom split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was called? Yes, the southern kingdom was called? How many tribes meet up the north? Ten. You're like a little bit slow. How about the south? Too, basically, and, and the Levites. You have Benjamin, Judah, and like the Levites. So here's the idea. You have the split of the kingdoms. You have the northern kingdom. It was just constantly wicked, constantly evil. Never once did they have a good king. However, even as we look at this, God was so good to the northern kingdom of Israel, like constantly saving the evil kings of Israel. A couple times here, he saves the king. So God was so good to his people, even though they're rebelling against him. 
Then the southern kingdom of Judah, we haven't really got there yet, but we'll look at just how different prophets, different kings ruled in different time periods. In the next few weeks, we're going to kind of walk through maybe hundreds of years of, of history, essentially, but I want you to kind of see the big picture. So you have Elijah, who's the prophet to the north. Elisha carries on his ministry, but he's filled with a double portion or power of a spirit. As you've maybe, maybe you've noticed this, but in 2 Kings like chapter 2, when you see the mantle, literally the mantle's passed down to Elisha, he has a double portion of the spirit. You start to read these stories of just how God worked in unusual ways through Elisha. And it just reminds us so much. It reminds me of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It almost feels like you're reading like New Testament stories, but in the Old Testament of just how God works. And Elisha's life does a po- point to a greater Elisha, one who had more authority and more power. So uh, we're going to read this, but we're not going to read right now because it's long. So we'll pray and we'll read throughout. Cool? Why don't we pray? We'll look at our text, this idea of gaining by losing. Father, we just want to say thank you. We want to thank you that we can come here on on just Sunday, on the day Jesus, you rose again, and we can celebrate you, King Jesus, that you are risen, that you are alive. God, that's not just Easter Sunday, we celebrate that. We thank you so much for the truth and the reality that Jesus, you are Lord, and you are risen, and you're at the right hand of the Father, and you live and make intercession for us, and you're preparing a place for us. And I just ask as we read through your word, your scriptures, God, just that you would speak, that even as obscure as some of these stories might seem, that you just reveal to us a great reality, that Jesus, there is a spiritual realm, there are things unseen, and that is more real than the things we see. And we just ask that, God, you would just be present, that you'd be glorified, that Jesus, you would be lifted up, and all eyes would be drawn to you, Jesus. We just want to thank you and praise you in your name. Amen. You know, being a parent of three kids and and two just at, you know, really critical ages, four and eight, there's a lot of drama in our home, right? You can imagine, four-year-old, eight-year-old, I've been on daddy duty weekend. It's been me and the four and eight-year-old, so please pray for me. Uh, It's just been me and the kids the last few days, and, you know, it's chaotic sometimes. There's a lot of drama. I I forget the the, the terminology for this, but if you have a child, you know, like mine, where that sensory, what is it called, sensory... I don't know, whatever. Where it's like, oh, my shoes don't feel right, right? If you guys are, if you're a parent, you know this, like, my shoes don't feel right, Dad. You're like, okay, just wear them. I don't know. I, I get this a lot in my house where, like, I, you know, I'll put some food on the plate and it's like, no, not there. I'm like, not where? Like, what are you talking about? The chicken goes on that side. I'm like, oh, dude, I'm so sorry. Just very interesting. I'll have, everything's really, you know, you know, intense right now in that way. Like, they're very specific about where things are, how things need to go. Today, our morning battle was just the, the pants. It felt weird. Again, it's just one of those things where you're like, no, there's, there's this little, like, thing that pops out and has, like, a button on, like, an extra button. It's like, what is this button into? I'm like, it's just an extra button. Why is it here? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Like, you know, everything's something. And sometimes, you know, as a parent, you're like, all right, Lord, I don't get the drama. I don't get why this small thing is a big deal, but help me to, help me to care. Because sometimes I'm like, I just don't care. Can we just move on? Can we just go? Just put the pants on the sleeve? You know, sometimes I feel like that's the hardest part is like, Lord, I know this is a big deal in his or her eyes. Not a big deal to me, but help me to get down at their level and be like, oh, I'm so sorry. Pants don't work. Let's go. Like, you know, and I had to do that because I literally just think about this message today. Here's the idea. God doesn't just care about the main big world events. He does get on our level and cares about those day-to-day things that for us, they seem big. In reality, they're probably small. For us, it just seems chaotic. So for example, there's going to be, we're going to read about a lost axe head. He's chopping down a tree, an axe head is lost, 
and it is a big deal. When I first read the story, you know, years ago, I'm like, what is going on? So they lose an axe head. He's like, alas, my axe head is gone. I'm like, what's the big deal? Now, we'll walk through that. We'll look at that. But here's what I want to kind of preface. I'm so thankful that God cares about even those simple, small things. Now, yes, you could say iron was costly. It, 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 it cost a lot back then. It's worth a lot. You, you can make an argument for that. But I'm just so thankful there's a God who's like, I actually see the small things. I know it matters to you, and I care as well. We serve a God who doesn't just care about the big things. He goes, I also care about those things. I'm very thankful for that. I'm very thankful we're told a caster cares upon him because he cares for us. But here's what we see. Overall, in these two stories of something that was lost than regained, I think there's a greater truth communicated. There is gaining by losing. So often, it's when we lose something, we gain something else. He loses an axe head, he will regain it, but he also gets to experience a miracle and a work of God. You lose something, but you really gain something. So let's read this story, 2 Kings 6, verse 1, kind of a bizarre story. Let's read it. It says, Now the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See, the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan... And each of us get there a log, and let us make a place for us to dwell there. And he answered, go. Then one of them said, be pleased to go with your servants. And he, Elisha, answered, I will go. So he went with them, and when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as, what, as one was felling a log, just chopping a log, his axe head fell into the water, and he cried out, Alas, my master, it was borrowed. I don't know. This just reminds me of my kids. Just, ah, it's so intense. Then the man of God said, Where did it fall? When he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. And he said, Take it up. So he reached out his hand and took it. All right. First point, again, is losing and gaining power. Losing and gaining power power. This is the story. This is it. The whole story right here. Uh, it's one of those stories I have to like slow down and be like, Lord, what is going on here? Okay, so here's the idea. Uh, if you guys remember in Gilgal and different parts of uh, Israel at this time, there's almost like prophet training schools. There's the prophets who said, Elisha, it's too cramped. It's too small. We want to build like another like ministry center, essentially, down by the Jordan. Let's go to the Jordan. Let's cut down some trees and let's build something. And it's cool. It's like, hey, we, the ministry is growing. We need to build something. We have a building project. Let's go. And they're like, will you go with us? And he's like, I will go. Now, before we move on, because I, I think this is, there's some things, I'm like, okay, Lord, what's going on here? One of them said in verse 3, one of them said, be pleased to go with your servants, and he answered, I will go. I love how one of them's like, hey, Elisha, come with us. He's like, you know what, I'm down. Let's go. I, I never want to underestimate just the power of one person asking. There's something about the, just one person saying, hey, come on, let's go. Go with us. Let's do it. I love this because God really does care about the one. So often we see that. I love how this one of them said, like, this is a lot of prophets are there, and like, hey, you should actually come with us and be a part of this. You know, something that's very pivotal for me in my life, and maybe you've experienced something similar to this, but I remember being 18 years old. There's a pastor named Craig Coffin. He, every Friday, did convalescent uh, home ministry. He'd go to this convalescent home. He would teach a Bible study. He would go room to room and pray with them. He'd even help change the diapers, and like, he was just amazing. And I remember, I'm like 18. He's like, come with me. I'm like, what do you do? He's like, we love on some old people. I'm like, what does that mean? He's like, you'll see. And it was quite an experience, you know, being like 18 and kind of like having the world in front of me and you think, and there's a future and all these things going on. And then you're kind of just face to face with someone at the end of their life. It really was very eye-opening. 
it was one of the things for me at 18 years old. I remember driving home, pulling into the driveway, and just in tears. Because like, Lord, thank you. It, it, it felt like I was the first time I was actually used by God. If you've ever felt that, where I was like, oh my gosh, God's used me. And you're like, I shouldn't even be here. Like, I, who might even be at this? It, it, it was so overwhelming. The reason why I bring that up was that was a really pivotal thing for me when one person said, come with me. Let's go. I do this thing every week. You need to come with me. Listen, maybe you're in the position right now to ask the one person. Maybe you're in a place of life where you're like, hey, just come with me. Maybe you're the person who's been asked by someone else, come with me. And you're like, uh, I don't know. I'll say this. Um, God works so often just through the power of one person asking, come with me. Come experience this. Let's, let's do this. If Elisha didn't go, we wouldn't have this story. They wouldn't have experienced this. But even the story, like, it's not that profound. It's pretty profound. We'll get into that. But it, it's beautiful. Just one person saying, hey, let's go. I love this because in the book of Acts chapter 8, if you remember, God was doing this great work of, like, just a miracle in Samaria. All these people were getting saved. Acts chapter 8. All these people are just coming to know Jesus. They're believing on him. They're repenting of their sins. And God takes Philip out of there, and he brings him to one person. He brings him to this Ethiopian eunuch who's reading through the book of Isaiah. He's actually in Isaiah 53. He's like, do you know what you're reading? Do, do you understand the, the, the text you're reading? He's like, how can I know what I'm reading unless someone tells me? And so then you get to see Philip share the gospel with this guy. He gets saved, bring the gospel to Ethiopia because one person. God's like, I love this revival with all these people, but I care about the one. Let's go to the one. And I just love how God used one person to change one person to change people. So often God uses one to do a great work. This, there's something about that. And so the, one of the prophets said to him, come on, let's go. Now here's the main story. Here's the drama. He's cutting down this tree. The axe head falls off into the water and he goes, alas, my axe head, it was borrowed. It just seems so dramatic of a story. Now, a couple things to highlight. Um, this is actually, to me, very important. Uh, there's a guy named Rod Mattoon, uh, Warren Wearsby, a lot of authors point this out, and I think it's profound. It's like it's not so much about the axe head. Here's the idea. Um, they were doing, like, have you been on a mission trip and you have a building project, and you're, like, helping in some ways build something? That's what they're doing. It's like they're doing the work of the ministry, building a ministry center so more people can be trained up, and it's doing, during the work of the ministry, the thing that was used to bring change was gone. As they're faithfully serving the Lord... They lost the power, essentially. The axe head is symbolic for just the power in which God gets things done or accomplished. Another way to put it is, it's not so much about the axe head. Um, think about it like this. Zechariah 4.6 says, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Here's the idea. Um, they lost the axe head. They lost the thing that was building and doing the work of the ministry. As they were serving, they lost the power. I do think there's a greater truth in that. So often in our life, it's very possible you can be serving the Lord, and as you're faithfully serving, you lose that power. It's just one of those things I want to be aware of and I want you guys to be aware of, where it's like you can be busy about the Lord's work, but you lose the thing that made you effective. The axe head was the thing that made him effective. It's not so much that they lost the axe head. It's like the work has stopped. Yes, you're serving. You're serving faithfully. This is pointed out. Uh, I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way. I, I, I've not like I've, I've chopped down a ton of trees, but you know I, I've used an axe here and there, um, and I do like to check it. You want to make sure it's not like you know is it like wiggly, right? It's like about to fall off. You kind of look at it, like you swing it back, and you don't want to kill someone. So you're like, okay, uh, it doesn't just fly off. Like an axe head doesn't just pop off. Normally, it, you'll start to notice that little wobble there'll be slight, oh, this isn't as tight as it once was. 
Like there's this idea of like, oh, maybe he's swinging, swinging, swinging. It's becoming wobbly. He's not noticing the thing becoming wobbly. Or he's swinging, swinging, swinging. The axe is becoming dull. He has to hit harder and harder and harder, and it's losing its sharpness. The idea is it doesn't just fly off. Meaning, um, it's not just overnight someone falls apart. There's usually a slow process of deterioration that we're not always aware of. It's one of those things I just think as we as followers of Jesus, I want to be aware of and I want you to be aware of. Why do we, we talk about small groups or community or loving on each other and knowing each other and know what's going on? Because it's usually not, so, it's not overnight someone just destroys their life. It's usually a slow process where you go, hey, things aren't as tight as they once were. Now it's a little bit wobbly. Hey, it used to be sharp and now it's a little bit dull. Are you guys tracking with me? There's something really powerful about saying, hey, it doesn't just happen. It takes time. And we should go, we got to be aware of this. Maybe he wasn't focused. Maybe he's so busy about the work, he's not noticing the issues going on. This can happen to us spiritually. This is one of those things where we're told to exhort one another daily while it's still called today, lest any of you be hardened in your heart by the evil desire of unbelief. Like we're told in Hebrews 3, encourage each other daily because our heart is prone to wander. Our heart is prone to disbelief. We're prone to lose that sharpness, that edge. We're prone to become wobbly in a sense. And the idea is it doesn't just happen overnight. Why do we say fight for community? Be in community. Don't just be like know others. Let other people know you. Like the deep hidden parts of your life. Because normally before you know it, the accident will fly off. And it probably didn't just happen randomly. There probably was a slow deterioration process. There's something to me that's really powerful about this idea. So, so the, the main thought is you're not going to ever build anything without the effective working power of the Holy Spirit. Be aware to not lose your effectiveness. We're told in Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. Here's the guy essentially trying to build the Lord's house, and he's going to labor in vain. He's not, like, obviously he stops and goes, I lost my accent. I'm glad he did that. Obviously he didn't just try to keep banging away the tree with just, you know, the stick portion. That's good. But the idea is, no, no, the Lord needs to do this. Do not lose your effectiveness. And here's what he cries out. Alas, my master, it was borrowed. It was borrowed. That phrase is powerful. It's not mine. Now, obviously, practically speaking, um, iron is rare. Iron is hard to get, especially, you know, imagine being in seminary. That's what these guys are. They're in seminary. Iron probably costs a lot of money. It's like, oh my gosh, I cannot pay this guy back. I need that. It's probably very costly. It just seems a little dramatic to me, to be honest. But just this fact, this word, it was borrowed. The effective power, the thing that was in my hand was not mine to begin with. Do we understand the idea? The effectiveness, the power in your life, it's not your power. It's not your power. It's not your tool. This power that has been given to you has been given to you by God, and it is borrowed. Meaning what you and I have in our lives, it's borrowed. I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. He says, what do you have that you did not receive? It's rhetorical. It's like everything you have in your life is borrowed. Everything you have in your life is a gift from God. Don't assume for one second it's yours. I try to write out this way. Forgive me for the, I don't know if it's not worded well. It's not your power. It's not your effectiveness. It's a borrowed power. That is the idea. He goes, it's, it's borrowed. It is so important to know that anything in your life that you have essentially is not from you. It's not yours. It's borrowed. God gave it to you. The power for ministry to make disciples, to love on people, to love your enemies, to do the hard things in life, the power for that is not yours. It is a borrowed power, meaning everything we have is by God's grace given to us. The power of the Spirit in our lives, it's not mine. It's not yours. The idea is be very aware of that. Don't lose sight of how effective that is. If you remember Samson, Samson thought his power was his. 
Samson had a really, really unique power, obviously. I always wonder, by the way, when you see, like, think of Samson, I, we always, like, think of Samson like this mighty, strong dude that was just, like, crazy, you know, yoked. I don't know. We always just imagine, like, this awesome, sick dude. I wonder if Samson was, like, a, like a stick. Like, maybe he's just, like, a really normal-looking dude, but yet had, like, crazy... Because I, I think you look at Samson, we imagine him being buff, but it's like, that guy was probably, like, a stick. That's why I even realized this is unique power. Like, he probably was really thin, kind of like nerdy looking. And it's like, why does he have so much strength? The supernatural power of God. That's just my personal thought. But here's what Samson fell into. Samson fell for the trap that his power in his life was his. He thought this is his power. That at any point in time, he can just call upon God. At any point in time, he can use his power. If you remember, he started to flirt with Delilah and he's like messing with her. And she's like, where does your power lie? I know this isn't yours. Where does your power lie? And he's like, well, if you braided my hair, and he's like kind of leading her on this way. Well, eventually he tells her, here's how I can lose my power. Cut my hair. And it says this in Judges 16, 20. Listen to this phrase. She said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. So he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as before at other times and shake myself free. Because this happened multiple times. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. Just that phrase, man. That, that is one of the most sobering phrases. He did not know that the Lord departed from him. It's almost like he, over time, he lost it. He was slowly saying, okay, this is, I could lose my power. And then he gets to his hair, okay, maybe. And then he basically says, okay, cut my hair. But he slowly, it didn't happen overnight, essentially. He started messing around with her, messing around with temptation. And it's like you lost your effectiveness and your power. You thought you had it. Listen, don't lose your effectiveness. Don't, don't let it like slip away slowly over time. This is what he said. Now, after he loses the axe head, Elisha has just asked one question, and this is powerful. He just says, where did it fall? Just stay with me. He goes, where did it fall? Where is it? It flew in the river. Where did it fall? And he says, essentially, in verse 7, or verse 6, we'll, keep, we'll read it again. He says, where did it fall? Then he showed him the place. He cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. Where did it fall? Here's a question. Um, when you've lost something, a good question to ask is, where did you lose it? At what point in time did you lose it? If you're like, what are you getting at? In Revelation chapter 2, there's a church. There's a church that left its first love. And here's what Jesus says to them in Revelation chapter 2, verse 5. Jesus says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. Elisha says, where did the axe head fall? Where did it fall? Where did it go in the water? Jesus is saying, you once loved me. Remember from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works. Like, go back to your first love. Repent of where you have fallen. So think about that. Was there a time in your life you were really close to Jesus? Where did it go wrong? Maybe you feel like you're following Jesus at a distance. Maybe you feel like, you know, years ago, Josiah, like I had this unique, intimate walk with the Lord. I feel like I heard from God. God used me. And now I feel distant. Now I feel like it's gone. The question that Elisha asks is, where did it fall where? Remember, Jesus said, remember from where you have fallen. Like, go back to that place. Like, you know what is actually this love of this thing took the place of the love of God, or this situation, or this moment, or this compromise. And I'll say this, he says, remember where you've fallen, repent. Like, go back. Like, do the things you first did. If there was a time where you just felt so close to Jesus, what made you feel close to Jesus? Go back to those things. Like, well, I actually used to wake up early and read my Bible, or go to bed late reading the Bible, and like, love on people, and bring homeless people food. Like, I was actually like, living out the faith in such a, okay, go back, he says, and do the things you first did. Isn't that beautiful from Jesus. He's like, if you were once loving me, hey church, hey Ephesus, you once loved me, but you've left your first love, go back and do the things you first did. 
So think back in your life and you go, man, I feel like at one point I was close to Jesus, but it's gone. It fell away. Okay, remember Jesus says, remember from where you've fallen. Repent and do the works you first did. I just hope in many ways that this story in 2 Kings 6 is not just a random story of an accident that falls in the water, but it's God saying, hey, something maybe has fallen off in your life, your effectiveness, your power, it's gone, it's in the waters, but repent and believe. Do the things you first did. Get back to the basics. Get back to being alone with Jesus. Get back to spending time with Jesus. Go back to those moments. Yes? It can't just be like, ah, oh, too bad, I once was close, whatever. The fact that he actually is overwhelmed and burdened, like, no, I need this back. I need this effectiveness back. I need this tool back. Listen, get back to that. Remember from where you've fallen. So I love that he does. He takes a stick. He cuts it off, throws it in the water. This iron floats to the top, and he just says, take it up. Take it up. I mean, essentially, Jesus did it all. Jesus paid it all, and we just receive it. Take it up. Receive the work of Jesus. Believe on him. Take it up. Take up your cross daily and follow Jesus. Take it up. Everything Jesus did it all. He paid for it all. It's floated to the top, essentially. He's saying, now take it up. I love what Rod Mattoon, a pastor, author, said. He said this. Uh, he says, the tree, talk about the stick, the stick that's thrown into the water. That stick comes from a tree. The tree, when applied to the water, resurrected the lost axe head. In the same way, the cross has made the difference for mankind. At Calvary, Christ was cut down in death and arose from the grave. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is not a fantasy, not a fallacy, but is a reality of history that should vanquish man's apathy. The work of that tree must be applied in the sinner's life if he or she is going to go from a lost condition to a found one. The tree's thrown in, it's found again. The tree applied is basically what he says. The tree must be applied to go from being lost to being found. I love that thought. The tree, the stick, it must be applied to the water. It must be applied for the thing that was lost to be found. The cross. I love what Peter says. The tree who Jesus bore our sins for us on a tree. The cross must be applied to go from being lost to being found. Meaning you say, Jesus, I, everything you did for me on the cross, I receive that. I take it up. Jesus, everything you did for me on the tree, the tree applied leads to me being lost to be now being found. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the tree. So the whole idea is this. Something was lost, but it's found. He lost his accent. He refound the accent, but he also found just a God working in a miraculous way, losing and gaining power through the story of the accent. We'll move on. That's my accent story. All right, let's go to verse eight. Verse eight, here's the, the, the main kind of part of the story. Uh, number two, we're gonna see losing and gaining sight. Losing and gaining sight. This is a really fascinating part of scripture. So let's just read it. Second uh, Kings six, verse eight. Losing and gaining sight. Verse eight. Uh, once, when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with uh, his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel. He says, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him, so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. Verse 11. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? He's like, one of you is a spy. One of you is telling them our plans. Verse 12. And one of his servants said, not my Lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, go and see where he is that I may send and seize him. It was told him, behold, he is in Dothan. 
So he sent there horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by the night and surrounded the city. Before we keep going on, this is fascinating. The king of Syria is like, here's what we're going to do. We're going to camp out here. This is where we're going to attack. This is where we're going to do our thing. Uh, it says, more than once or twice, Elisha got that word, told the king of Israel, don't go there. Don't pass through there. You're going to be attacked. The king of Syria goes, um, excuse me, who's telling them our plans? Who's a spy here? Who's doing this? He's like, no one. No one here's a spy, but he has a prophet. And the things you say in secret, God makes it open. The things you say in your bedroom, oh, he knows. Isn't this a fascinating story? I love this story. The things that you think are done, this military plan we have to do this in secret, to attack him in secret, God makes it aware to his prophet Elisha, and he tells it to the king of Israel. By the way, Israel, evil king, not a good king. God is so good, though. He loves his people. He's constantly saving them. He's constantly providing for them. And this story is so profound to me. And I don't want to spend too much time on this thought, but I just, I love this. I'm like, man, it is scary. John 3 talks about this. The things done in darkness are brought to the light. The idea is that like what you say in secret, what you do, it's not really secret. It's, it's kind of, it's, it's unbelievable. How humbling is that, by the way? This is incredibly humbling. He's like, hey, you know the things you say in your bedroom in private? Uh, God's like, uh, yeah, he knows that. And he's telling his prophet and the prophet's telling this guy. Like, oh my goodness. Okay, so he goes, let's get that prophet. Like, we got to end this. So he, I want to point this out right away. The king of Syria thinks God is my enemy. God is my enemy. He's out to harm me. God doesn't want good for me. God's trying to stop what I want. I don't like God. It was not that Israel is his enemy. It's that God's his enemy now. And this is very profound. I want you to see this because we're going to get back to this idea. To the king of Syria, God is his enemy. God is a killjoy. God is not good. God wants to take away what I want. There are many who view God that way. God is my enemy. How dare God say no to me? How dare God not let me do what I want to do? That's how he views God. But then we're going to see also this servant who's also going to be blind to God. So we'll keep reading. Uh, let's look at, pick it back up, verse 15. So he's surrounded, remember? Verse 15, when the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, do not be afraid for those who are with us uh, are more than those who are with them. Verse 17, then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. How cool is this story? Okay. So Elisha's servant, and not Gehazi. Remember, Gehazi was greedy. He still took some treasure. He lied about it. So Gehazi's gone. We'll see him in the next chapter or two. Uh, but there's a new servant with Elisha. He's surrounded by the Syrian army. It's Elisha. A servant surrounded by the Syrian army. And he goes, my master, we're surrounded. What are we going to do? And Elisha's like, no, 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 you don't, you don't get it. There is more of an army with us than with them. We have a greater army with us than with them. And he prayed, God, open his eyes that they may see. And he, the servant's eyes are open. And he just sees the spiritual realm all around him, horses, horses, chariots of fire. And he goes, oh my goodness. This story is so profound to me. One thing I want to point out really clearly, okay? We have to see this. Everybody, everybody, this story has shown us, everybody is spiritually blind. The Syrians don't see what's around them. But also, the man of God, the servant of God, does not see. This is very important. The Syrians we know are the enemy of God. The Syrians view this guy as an enemy. They view God as an enemy. He's surrounded, okay? But also, Elisha's servant is also blind to the spiritual realm. Now, here's the, the reason why I point this out. Um, sometimes we think, I have, you know, we, ha we can see these things going on, but they can't. 
It's fascinating to me that the good moral servant of God is also blind to the spiritual realm, but also the wicked Syrians are blind to the spiritual realm. Both were blind to this. The idea is everyone needs to go from being blind to seeing. It, it's, it's, it's a problem when you think, oh, they're blind, I'm not. That's what's happening right now with the light. So there's something we have to see this. Everyone needed their eyes to be opened. Whether it's a servant of God or essentially the Syrians, my thing is this, um, there comes a point in time in your life where you go, I've been living a certain way, I don't want to live that way, and now I want to live a good life. And you think maybe you got saved at that point, now you repented, you changed, and they're just like, okay, this is good. I can now see. Maybe. But maybe you just embrace moralism. Sometimes I think the church so often repents of bad things and embraces moralism and embraces like a lifestyle that's like good and holy, but it's still not being born again. Just because you don't do the things you used to do doesn't mean you're born again. That's important. I really think it's important. Just because you're like, oh, I, I don't do those things. Now I live this way. I must be born again. I think there comes a point in time that you actually have to have your eyes open this way. It's one thing to know that God forgives you. It's another thing to experience the forgiveness of God. So please hear this. It's one thing to know that God loves you. It's another thing to be overwhelmed by the love of God. It's, it's one thing to say, I can read the Bible and, and I hear what God says and does for me. I'm saved by my faith in Jesus. It's one thing to know that. It's another thing to experience it. So sometimes we can be like, my eyes are opened. I can now see. Maybe. Maybe, though, have you actually truly tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Have you actually been born again to the spiritual reality? That which is of flesh is flesh. That which is of spirit is spirit. Jesus said you must be born again. My fear or concern sometimes is there are Christians who left a certain lifestyle, embraced a moral good lifestyle, but they're still, not, they're still blind. Their eyes need to be open to the reality of who Jesus is. So here's the idea. Everyone's blind to the nature of sin. Sin, please hear me out. Sin is not just breaking God's rules or laws. Sometimes when we communicate sin, please hear this. We think sin is breaking the laws or the commands of God. It's more than that. It's not just that. It's more than that. Sin is not trusting in the goodness of God. So sin goes back to the garden. Sin's the idea of the serpent saying, did God really say the day you eat this, you'll die? He knows the day you eat this, you'd be like him. So the idea was this. Satan is saying, God is withholding good from you. God doesn't want good for you. The Syrians thought, this God is withholding good for me. The servant thought, God left us here stranded, we're going to die. God's not good. They both questioned the goodness of God in different ways. Are you, are you following me? The Syrians are saying, oh my gosh, this God is awful. We hate him. The servant is saying, God abandoned us. The sin they both committed was that God is not a good God. And I, here's what I love about the story. Elisha is going to introduce them to insane goodness. Elisha is going to take these men, who are about to be blinded in a second, and he's going to show them how good God is. God is going to spare them. He's not going to judge them. But I need you to track with me. It says this in Psalm 27. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear Though war may rise against me in this place, I will be confident. This is what Elisha's doing. Though an army camp against me, I'm not going to fear. What happens to a servant? We're surrounded, we're going to die. And he goes, I pray God, open his eyes that they may see. Listen, could you imagine that right now, by the way? Imagine that right now. God, would open your eyes to the reality of around, what's around us. Sometimes I do wonder about that. There are things unseen that are more real than the things we see. We have to understand there is a spiritual realm that I believe is more real than what you and I might take in. 
He saw one reality. We're surrounded. Elijah goes, there's another reality that coexists. And this reality is stronger than the reality you and I are in. He opens his eyes and he sees an army surrounding him, but then he sees the spiritual army surrounding them. Do we get this, Christians? That there are things that we do not see that are more real than the things we see. Yes, right? That there is a spiritual realm. I fully believe we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. I fully believe there are things unseen that are more real than the things you and I take in. And I think that's beautiful because here's, here's the idea. I just think about the last few years. We see things going on in our world and we go, oh my gosh, the world's coming to an end. We're surrounded. We're going we're gonna to die here. This is crazy. Do you not see what we're on the verge of? And like, we sometimes like, see these things. And I love this because sometimes it frustrates the world, I notice. When Christians are at peace and they're just a non-anxious presence, in the, it really rubs people the wrong way. Why aren't you fearful? It's like, I see another army. I see another thing that you don't, I see we're surrounded by God's goodness and God's people and God's army. We're surrounded by the hosts of heaven. Here's the thing. It's very easy for me to look at what's going on and get kind of freaked out and go, oh, this is happening, this is happening, this is happening, this is happening. But then when you realize, wait a second, hold on. There is another spiritual realm. There's another realm that we do not see that coexists with our realm and has more power and more weight. And what shall I fear? Though an army surround me, the Lord is with me. Though an army surround me, the Lord of hosts, the host of heaven, also surrounds me and is with me and in me. Do we get the spiritual realm? I think if you and I could see what actually mattered, it radically changed. Like if we could even look around this room, sometimes think, like, what would we see right now? Like what would we, what would we see? I love the thought in Matthew 18 because it talks about uh, not sinning against children. It says not to sin against children because the angel, it says their angels always see the face of my father in heaven. That's a verse I go, what? Their angels always see the face. Like don't sin against them because their angels always are with God and commune with God. Huh? I, I do think about that. Like this, all the kids ministry is surrounded right now by angels. Like trust me, they need it. They need it. The, the workers need it. But I love that. I'm like, there are things that you and I do not see. And I think that is more real than the things we do see. And if we could actually believe and lean into that, I really do believe, like Elisha, we would have a non-anxious presence in a time where most people are anxious. Elisha's servant is frightened and terrified. We're surrounded. We're going to die. Elisha's like, you don't see what I see. Listen, the world will think you're nuts at times by not reacting to certain problems and issues because of something that you, and listen, don't be frustrated by that. Don't be mad at that. You're like, I just see things that differently. I don't think we're surrounded by this thing. I think we're surrounded by a greater thing, the Lord of hosts, his army. It allows you and me to be a non-anxious presence in a community or a world that's very anxious. Are you guys tracking with me? This is so important. I'll see what Paul says. Uh, or actually, let me read this to you. G. Kimball Morgan said, faith is never the imagining of unreal things. You hear that? Faith is never the imagining of unreal things. It is the grip of things which cannot be demonstrated to the senses, but which are real. The chariots of horses and fire were actually there. Faith is not just us imagining things that don't exist. No, they exist. It's just unthinged things. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 4. Profound verse. Write this down. I hope this speaks to you guys. 2 Corinthians 4, 17. He says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Thank you, Jesus. Beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient or temporal, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Do you hear that? There awaits for us, though we have light affliction, there is an eternal weight of glory. So though we suffer, though we realize our bodies are falling apart, life is falling apart, we're surrounded, the things that are unseen 
are eternal. And you realize this home, this place, my body, it's, it's just temporal. There's something that's eternal that will not fail me. There's something that's eternal that I can look forward to that's more real than the things that are seen. I love this. He says, the things that are seen, the, uh, he says, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. It's so profound. So we'll keep going. He says, God, open his eyes, open his eyes that he might see. Verse 18, let's pick back up. Verse 18. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, this is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. Keep going, verse 20. Verse 20. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw. And behold, they were in the midst of Samaria, which is the capital of Israel. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? He answered, You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? He says this, set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away and they went to their master and the Syrians did not come again on their raids into the land of Israel. What is going on? So they're surrounding Elisha and his servant. Then Elisha prays, God, strike down the Syrian army with blindness. They're, they're blind now. They're surrounded by the hosts of heaven. They're now blind. Elisha's like, let me take you to the person uh, you're looking for. He leads them into Samaria. They're blind. Imagine how vulnerable, vulnerable you are in that moment. You are blind. You're about to go to war. You can see nothing. Here's this guy that says, follow me. You follow him because you're blind. You have no idea what just happened to you. How is everyone blind? You go into Samaria, the capital of Israel. There's the king of Israel. Like, uh, Elisha just marched this blind army of the Syrians into our presence. I mean, it's unbelievable to think about this like battle scenario. It's like, uh, they're just here. They were ready to slaughter you and now us. They're a constant war with Israel. And Elisha's like, should, should we strike them down? Should we, should we kill them? He's like, no, give them food and water and a feast. What? Okay, this is, this is, this is the gospel to me. So here's the idea. Um, the question we see is, what does Elisha show them? Here's what Elisha shows them. First of all, they're blind. He makes them blind. He opens their eyes. They're surrounded by their enemies. They're in their mind, this is where we die. We should kill, the king's thinking, you should kill them, right? We should kill them? No, don't kill them. Here's the idea. What does Elisha show them? He shows them the goodness and grace of God. Elisha shows them the gospel. This is so profound. What did they deserve? They were constantly killing the Israelites, their people. They're constantly at war with them. They deserved at that point in time, you could say, they deserve what war would bring, death. They deserve death. What do they get instead? Not death, but a feast. Not death, but food. They get the goodness and grace of God. This is the gospel. What do you and I deserve? We are at one point in time called enemies of God. What do we deserve? We're at war with God. We deserve death. The wages of sin is death. What do we get? A feast. This does not make sense. This does not make sense. When you read the Old Testament, you're like, I don't get God of the Old Testament. He's always just so angry, killing everybody. I'm like, no, God takes the people that deserve death and says, let's have a feast. Old Testament, not New Testament. Hey, the people that deserve death, I'm going to give them a feast. The people think, this is crazy. They're about to kill you and us. And then God throws them a feast. Listen, the gospel is this. You and I, at one point in time, were enemies with God. We deserve death. And God's like, let me throw you a feast. The point is, I love what Paul says in Romans 2. 
And he says, it's the goodness of God that brings us to repentance. I don't know if you've ever come face to face with that reality. We go, I'm such a filthy, dirty sinner. And yet God in his mercy and grace, he des- I deserve punishment. And yet he gives me Jesus' righteousness. He gives me life and life more abundantly. He gives me, a, he sets a meal before me and says, eat, feast. This idea of just like, no, we're going to celebrate. You should be dead, but now you're alive. This is the gospel literally told in the Old Testament. Elias is like, let me just show them grace in this moment. He's literally doing what, what Proverbs writes about. Solomon writes about this, feeding your enemy. Paul picks up on this idea of feeding your enemy. Listen to this. It's Romans chapter 12, verse 20. Romans 12, he says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is what Elisha's doing. They had ill intent. They want to hurt you. They're wicked. Feed them. Love them. Church, when the world is at, when the world says, I hate Christians and everything Christians stand for, feed them. Love them. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who spitefully use you. Jesus said, what is it to you that you love those who love you? Anyone can love those who love them. A real follower of Jesus loves those who hates them. This is how men will know you're my disciples, by your love for one another. And Jesus says, if you, and God's, or John says in 1 John, if you say you love God but hate your brother, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. Here's the idea. We have to love those who hate us, hate Jesus. We have to not just love them with words, but practically, tangibly love them, feed them, show them the goodness and grace of God. Here's what I'll say. For those who just hate everything you might and I might believe or stand for, say, you know what? There is a God who loves you. You and I deserve death. I deserve death, not just you. I deserve death. But this God, in my weakness, in my sin, he gave me life and life everlasting. He, he fed me. He took care of me. He provided for me. I did not deserve the goodness and the grace of God, but he loved me. You do not deserve the goodness and grace of God, but he loves you and he gives you another way out. And the, the idea is like, he's not just trying to basically overcome his enemies. He's trying to win his enemies. I love this because they're trying to capture Elisha. They're trying to, in a sense, how do we get this person so we can ultimately get to God? We don't like this God. We want to capture God in a sense. And God's like, I want to capture you. You want to accomplish your way, your work? Mm-mm. I'm going to go and perform, I'm going to pursue you and find you. And I'm going to show you how good I am. The Syrians deserve death. They were ready to kill. They were ready to do all the disgusting things that armies and soldiers do during war. They're ready to do all of that. And yet God showed them grace and peace and love. And here's the idea. They lost their sight. They regained their sight, but they gained something more, the goodness and grace of God in that moment. So often, again, gaining comes by losing. They lost their sight. We're blind. They regained their sight, and they also regained just the grace of God. You deserve death, but we're going to feed you. This is a feast. Literally, it says a feast. We're going to throw a party. Like, that makes no sense to the enemy. If you've ever, again, experienced the grace of God, you realize this makes no sense. Christianity makes no sense. I will agree with you. Christianity makes no sense to my human mind. Like, think about that. What do we deserve? And God's like, and yet I'm going to pour out my grace on you. You deserve hell and death. I, de- I deserve that. But God in his goodness, but God, because of his great love towards us with which he loved us, has given us his son, has given us mercy, has set before us a feast. We deserve that. It does not make sense. God's like, I'm not trying to destroy you. I'm trying to win you. I'm trying to show you that this is what you deserve, but I'm going to woo you and bring you to me through, through a meal, through loving you, through serving you. Guys, this is so good. Gaining by losing. 
they lost their sight, but they gained the goodness and grace of God. He lost his acts, but he gained a miracle. He gained the power in a different way. I want you to see that so often, if you want to find your life, you must lose it. Let me just end with this verse. This is so profound. Paul talks about gaining by losing. Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. Just read it with me up here on the screen. Philippians 3, 7. Paul says, but what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet I, yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Look at all these gains and loss. He goes, what things were gained to me? These things that used to matter to me, I now count them as loss. By giving them up, I gain Christ. By saying, you know what? This doesn't matter. I will give this up. I've gained something far much, far better. The idea for you and I, again, is this. Um, you want to find your life, lose it. Give it up. As you lose it, as you say, not my will, not what I want, not my identity, my desires, I'm going to give it up. And then you gain your life. And you go, oh my gosh, I found everything I ever needed by losing, by giving it up. I gained it. Jesus puts it this way. Why do you want to gain the world but lose your soul? If you try to gain it, you will lose it. If you lose it, you'll gain it. That's just the gospel. You want to gain the world, you're going to lose your soul in the process. You want to lose your life, you're going to gain it. This is the way of Jesus. Gaining by losing. Their blindness turns to them experience an insane goodness, miracle of God. You're not going to die today. We're going to feed you and send you on your way. You would think this would change them, but we'll see next week it does not change their heart. Sadly, this is still the gospel story to us today. The gospel is so good. God gives it to us. We go, that's good news. That's cool. I should have died. God fed me. We go on our way. We forget. We go in our way. We still want to fight with God. Okay. We're going to see what happens next week. But my point is, it's so sad that God's like, time and time again, I'm going to show you goodness and grace, goodness and grace. You do not deserve that. I'm going to show you that. I say this, respond to that. Don't fight that. Don't assume that you'll have forever. Don't assume that like you will see tomorrow. Today's the day of salvation. Believe on Jesus and you will be saved. Yes? Let's just go to the Lord. I just want to worship and say, thank you, Jesus, that by losing my life, I gain it. By losing, by giving it up, I gain what you have for me. I count it all. It's, all. it's worth it. It's worth it that I get to gain you, Jesus. Father, we just want to say thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for this reality, Lord, that whether it's uh, this prophet who lost something but gained you in a miracle, an insane miracle, or these men who lost their blindness but they gained the goodness and grace of God in a moment, Lord, we just ask that you would reveal to us, not just in theory, not just to our heads, but Lord, that we would truly believe on this, that we would not just know that you're a good God, that we would not just know that uh, you're a forgiving God, but that we would experience that, Lord. God, I just ask that everyone in this room, everyone, would experience your goodness and your grace. That everyone would not just know about it, but that they would just believe on you, Jesus. That, Lord, we count it all loss, and we've gained so much more just knowing you. Just that we might know you. So we thank you, Jesus. We just want to praise you. We ask that you would be lifted up and glorified today. In your precious name, amen. Church, why don't you just stand? Let's just close out our time with some worship.